Um, uh, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, just to the end of the chapter. And Paul has been writing his dear friends in Thessalonica, encouraging them and, and reminding them of truths. And so he says in verse 17, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. God's Word from 1 Thessalonians 2, 17-20. Some years ago, I was traveling for work. I used to, before I was a pastor, uh, I was uh, an engineer, research engineer, and I used to travel, and particularly in the early days when Peg and I were first married, I traveled at least once a month for a week at a time, sometimes uh, multiple weeks at a time. And, and I never actually really liked it. I got to see most of the country, and that was great. I got to go overseas and, um, and had some interesting trips and so forth, but but I never really enjoyed being away. I always wanted to be back home. And I, I, I never liked traveling because uh, when I came back, even if it was just five days I was away, I felt like I had missed life over those five days with my loved ones. And it, it was, just felt weird coming back, kind of catching up on what had gone on in those five days. And I uh, developed a name for that feeling. I call it the Rip Van Winkle Syndrome. Um, after Rip Van Winkle, if you know the, this legendary tale, he slept for 20 years, then woke up, and had to catch up. Everything had changed while he was asleep, and you know you had to get used to life. Well, that's what I called my five days away. I would come back. It was the Rip Van Winkle syndrome. Just felt displaced. I felt you know like wow, I just you know I got to catch up with everything, and and I, I didn't enjoy that. Uh, that's just background actually to uh, something that stuck in my mind that I saw in one of those trips. One of the times I was I was traveling, and and I think I was in another airport, not not Boston or Manchester, uh, and. I was in the airport and coming out of the jetway, and in those days they didn't have the security so the families could come right there and meet you as you came out of the jetway. Uh, that was a long time ago. but uh, So we were coming out of the jetway, and there was this young man, relatively young guy, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 years old, um, coming up out of the jetway in front of me, and there was his family waiting for him. And it was, you know, a good-sized family. Uh, what looked like was probably his wife and then some teens and stuff or early teens and you know maybe five six people they're waiting for him and he's he's coming up to greet them and you would expect normally right in that situation like dad you're home a, a hug from the wife kids like really happy you know running into his arms and stuff there was none of that they all were there waiting for him he just walked up to them and uh and he said hey and one of the kids said hey and then they just started walking through the airport like in front of me and there was no interchange, there was no affection, uh, no more conversation, and it just really stuck in my mind. Now, I have no idea what was going on in their lives, so I'm not trying to jump to conclusions. There are probably some valid explanations of why, but it just like really stuck out to me. Like, where, If I was coming back from the trip and it was Peg and the kids, I'd be like, honey, great to see you, and the kids would be you know, hugging and whatever, there'd be affection. And yet there wasn't any here. Again, I, I, to this day, of course, don't know what was going on, and maybe there was a a valid reason for that. Uh, but it, it stuck out, and it made me think, you know what, I want to make sure that my loved ones know that I love them, um, that I express affection, 
Um, and, uh, you know, I grew up in a family that's not strong, real strong in expressing affection, but we still did. And there are certain different ways to express affection. I'm not trying to say you have to be really demonstrative and go crazy every time you see everybody. But I just realized and resolved, I want to make sure that my family feels my love and that my kids know that I love them and I'm, I'm affectionate. Um, I think that's part of what's appropriate when you're with loved ones. And that's background to this section of Scripture. That was true for Paul and his team. Paul and his team loved the Thessalonians, and they expressed it. And we see in this chapter just this deep affection and love. And this is here for us as an example, really, and as instruction for what it looks like to be part of the family of God and how we ought to feel about one another. So Paul's example of affection to the Thessalonians is instructive to us, and I think it teaches us this, that when Jesus changes your life, He gives you a love for others. When Jesus changes your life, you want nothing more than to be with others and more importantly, for them to be with Jesus. When Jesus changes your life, you want nothing more than to be with His people and to see them with Jesus. And that's what this passage is about. So I just want to talk about that and I want to talk about those two points and then we'll consider a third point because the context here is that they, Paul didn't get to be with them and so there's a struggle and there's a reality in our lives that, that though we may love others and though we may love the family of God, we can't necessarily be with them. There, there can be a parting. And how do we deal with that? What do we think? How do we see that? So we'll look at that as well. So let's begin. Uh, and I want to begin first with the point of being with Jesus. So as you look at the passage, as you look at the paragraph, you, you see that the first thing that Paul talks about is being torn away. He's talking about not being with them and how he feels about that. And, and, he'll, and he goes into that, and there's, it's quite a section in that, that first, those first two verses. But I want to start in verse 19 because that's where Paul explains the background for why he feels this way. How he thinks about them. And, and we know it's, it's explanation because verse 19 starts with the word for. So Paul explains, he says, I feel this way, and then verse 19, for, and then goes on to say why. So I want to talk about the why first, why he feels this way, and then with that why we feel that way, and then we'll go into uh, wanting to be with them. So first, being with Jesus. Um, Paul, Paul explains this, and he, he, he says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? He, he brings a question. He kind of intensifies his, his response by asking him a question. What is, what is the reason for me to feel this way? Uh, well, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? Uh, so he's telling them straight up that the reason that he feels this way is because they are his hope and joy and crown of boasting. Now, some background uh, to this. We don't know all that was going on in Thessalonica, but, but we do know that first, Paul had been apart from them. Uh, Paul had been torn away from them. He had been there for a short amount of time and then because of persecution and a real threat on his life and the life of the team, he had to leave and get out of there and leave this relatively young church, uh, which he loved dearly. We see that in the, in the chapter. Uh, and he had to leave them. And so, so there's the natural feelings that they would have. is like, wow, Paul, I mean, we're, we had this great time going. We loved you and then you're gone and we haven't seen anything from you since. There could be this temptation that, does, you know, do you really care about us? What do you think? 
Uh, that's just a natural temptation that they would have. So Paul's addressing that. It also may have been that, that uh, Paul was being slandered in Thessalonica because we know there was persecution and that they had resisted what Paul was doing, resisted the Gospel, and, and particularly the, the local synagogue and so forth. Uh, for the most part, there were many who became believers out of that synagogue, but for the most part were opposing Paul. It was likely that they were spreading slander, trying to persuade people to stop following this teaching from Paul and would have said, hey, you know, like what, what do you think? This guy, I mean, he just took off. He's just a charlatan. He was here to take advantage of you and, and just wait. He's going to ask for money at some point. You know, that's what this guy wants. You're just, you're just people he's taking advantage of. That's what's going on with Paul. And, and so Paul wants them to understand, no, that's not at all the case. And so he's explaining how he feels. And he's explaining why he feels this way. And certainly, uh, he's demonstrated in the letter, and we know they would have known from the history, we know from the history looking in Acts, that, that he lived in line with what he's saying too. So he's no charlatan. He's someone who deeply loves the Thessalonians. And so he's telling him that, and then telling them the, the reason why behind it. He's explaining where this great affection comes from. What is, what is the theological truth behind it? How, how has theology uh, oriented Paul and how has the love of Christ oriented Paul in relationship to the Thessalonians? So he's saying that you guys are, are you're our joy and crown of boasting for our Lord Jesus. Just so you know, uh, crown of boasting, you may think, well, what in the world is a crown of boasting? Never seen a crown of boasting. I have no idea what, what Paul's talking about. Well, in those days, when you were a great athlete, and you competed in an athletic competition, something like the Olympics, the original Olympic Games, uh, you didn't get a bronze medal or a silver medal or a gold medal. You got a crown of boasting. You got a crown uh, to wear. And it would have been all of, all of branches woven together, put on your head. And that was basically your gold medal. Uh, so the crown is your gold medal. And it shows you wear it, and you show everybody, I'm the victor. I'm the great athlete. Uh, also, in warfare, if you were war, a war hero, um, you didn't get a medal, a, a bronze star, or a silver star, or a medal of honor. You got a crown of boasting. You, you wore a crown and you were paraded through the streets as a hero. And so that's what Paul's saying in this is when he says, You're our hope and our joy and our crown of boasting. He's basically, You guys, you're our gold medal. You guys, you're our medal of honor. You guys are the ones that, that, that we treasure and value. You're our reward. You're the one uh, that we live for and we're celebrating that, that you are with the Lord. That you belong to Him and you'll be there on that final day receiving your reward and glory. That's what we think about. That's our, that's our ambition. It's just interesting to, to think about it. That, that should be shocking in some ways because this is an amazing uh, devotion to the Thessalonians that Paul's talking about. You guys, you're the one we live for. To see you there. And, and there could have been other motivations, certainly the ones that he was accused of. You know, Paul, your, your hope is to deceive and your joy is to benefit at their cost. And your crown of boasting is how many people you'd swindled. That's, that's what the slanderers would have said. But even kind of mainstream culture might have uh, looked for other perspectives and our culture as well uh, can have this perspective. Uh, you know, Paul's hope and joy and crown of boasting, maybe, you know, is to be the best church planting team in the, in the whole Roman Empire. That's, our, that's what we're after. That's our goal. Uh, that's our hope, that we're going to be this excellent team. We're going to practice excellence. Those are 
those are goals, the sorts of goals that we see out there, right, on teams and organizations to, to be the best at what we do. Um, Paul could have had as, as his motivation just to make the most of his life, to do the best he can at the things he loves the most, uh, that sort of thing. You, you hear those motivations. Um, it could have just been like, we're committed to excellence. We're going to do things in an excellent way in all that we do. And those are the sorts of motives that you find in our culture for teamwork. But that's not at all what Paul's saying. He's saying, guys, this is our goal. This is what we're laboring for. This is our, what our affections are, are for and oriented towards. It's you guys. You're our hope. You're our joy. You're our crown of boasting. You guys personally, you're the ones we think about. You're what we live for. We're living and laboring because we love you and we want to see you living before Jesus in eternity. We want to see you glorified. We want to see you enjoying Jesus. That's how we're oriented. That's radically different, isn't it? Than all the other motives that are out there. And again, this is to inform us and to kind of push us in a direction of how we think about the church. How we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ. In particular, the ones that are in our local church. Whatever local church you might be in. Those are the ones you're, you're called to first in priority to have this sort of orientation. So how do you think about your church? What sort of things are at the top of your list for the goals of your church? What are your ambitions for King of Grace Church? Is it to be an excellent church that does everything well? Nothing wrong with that. Is it, is it to, to be effective and polished in the different things that we do? Is it to be the best at certain things? Or is it people? That people would be so affected through your life and through this local church that on the final day, they'll be there, first off. And secondly, they'll have a rich reward to enjoy with the Lord forever. Is that what you live for? Is that your orientation towards your fellow believers? That's what Paul's saying is, is his. Paul is living in light of two days in this. He realized there's a final day and there's two days. Those two days. There's a, a final day when Jesus will return and everyone will stand before Him. And those who have fled to Him for grace and mercy and live with Him will, will be safe and will be with Him and will be rewarded and will be glorified and live with Him forever. And those who don't run to Jesus, who live life on their own, will be judged by Jesus as the ultimate King and Judge. And so he's living for that day and, and, and he's using this day to labor and to feel and to work and to live that others may be ready for that day. 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians actually talks a lot about these days. Just in chapter 4, uh, coming up soon, Paul's going to say this, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's wonderfully good news. And that's what awaits the believer. And so Paul's encouraging them about this, and he's uh, living to prepare them for that, that they would be ready and live for that day. But there's a, a kind of downside to the, that day as well that we need to be aware of, and this is mentioned in 2 Thessalonians. Uh, chapter 1, so the next letter that Paul writes, he addresses the, the downside to that final day. Uh, it, it can be wonderful news, it can be bad news. And he says in, in 
chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. God, uh, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to those who are uh, to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and, th- and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So this is that day as well. And this is that day for those who have not run to Jesus. Not run to the good news. The Gospel. Paul's living in light of that and and he's relating to the Thessalonians in light of that. When we get this truth, when we get the good news and why we need the good news, it changes how we think about others. It changes how we think about fellow believers. It changes how we think about those who don't yet know the Lord. It, it, it orients us in a way that we want them to be ready for that day. And we live that way. We want our brothers and sisters to be ready. We want their reward to be maximized. We want God's glory to be maximized through their lives. We want those who don't yet know the Lord to be ready to flee to Him for mercy. See, there's bad news here. This section in 2 Thessalonians talks about the bad news that there's judgment coming. And it's not because God's judgmental that judgment's coming. It's not because God somehow gets His jollies in inflicting punishment. It's because He's good. And He's the Creator of all. He's the Lord of all. He's made everything. And He rules over everything. And and He is just and holy and good. And He is perfectly and completely just and holy and good. Therefore, He has to deal with evil. He has to deal with sin. And sin is basically rebellion against God and His goodness. It's saying, God, I don't want You. I don't want Your ways. I want my ways. I want to do it on my own. And there's all sorts of ways we we can sin. And all degrees of that. But it's all evil. It's all rebellion against His reign and rule. It's all relying on ourselves and looking to ourselves instead of depending on Him. Every good thing comes from God. and The the Scripture teaches us it's obvious actually from what's been made what God's like. And so none of us have an excuse. God in His creation has shown that He's mighty and that He's good. And that we have an obligation to Him. And yet we've rebelled, we've sinned, we've turned away from Him, we've sought to do life on our own, and we've pursued actually sin. And your sin might be the sort of sin that's like blatant and obvious to everybody, destructive, and, and you, you know it's wrong. But your sin could also be self-righteousness. It could be the sin of like, well, I'm good enough. I haven't done anything I, I, that would offend God. And, and I'm good enough on my own. And I, I follow the law. And you know, I, I, I've never hurt anybody. And, and you don't understand yourself. You're not being honest with yourself. That if you really look in your heart, maybe you've not done terrible things, but there's been things in your heart. And if you had the, perhaps the different circumstances, you might act on those things. And even just thinking that somehow you can be good enough for God and not really seeing that God's standard is so perfect and good and so right that you fall terribly short of it. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the standard. Anyone here ever do that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every bit of your being, every fiber of your being, recognizing His goodness and His love, responding to Him, I love you and I want to live for you no matter what the cost. We, we fall short of that. We don't love our neighbors 
as ourselves. We don't love our neighbors at the same level of concern and care that we have for ourselves. We all fall short, and God in His justice must deal with that. And so 2 Thessalonians 1 and elsewhere says that He's going to bring judgment and we're going, to be, uh, we're going to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. You see, the wages of sin is death. Death is to be cut off from life, right? Life comes from God only. He is the giver of good things. Every good gift comes from Him. Life itself comes from Him. Both physical life and spiritual life. And because of our sin, we are cut off spiritually from Him. We have no spiritual life left to ourselves. That's justice. And then eventually we'll physically die. And if we haven't run to Him for rescue from our terrible predicament, we will live forever in spiritual death. That's what this destruction is. It's not ceasing to exist. It's ceasing to live truly. It's being cut off from God, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So in this life, even if you or I are living in rebellion against God, we still get to enjoy much of God's blessing and goodness and nearness in ways we're not even aware. Uh, He's good to everybody. It's amazing. Uh, All the blessings of life that come to all of us. But if we continue in our sin, there will be judgment on that final day and we'll be cut off forever. There will be no recourse at that point. And when you die physically, the next step is to face that judgment. And there's no more recourse. And so the, the... The implication here is find rescue now. (laughs) Find Jesus now. This is Paul's heart for the Thessalonians. This is our heart when we get these things. When we realize that we need help. When we see the bad news, we we want ourselves and we want everyone else to run to God for rescue because there's good news. The good news is this, that God didn't leave us in our sin. He didn't leave you in your sin. God in His great love, His amazing love and great humility came and took on flesh, became a man. Man, Jesus Christ. Lived the life that we all should have lived in perfect obedience to His heavenly Father and perfect consistent love for others. Even to the point of death and even to the point of death on the cross and even to the point of death on the cross where He bore in Himself on that cross the punishment of others. So He went to the cross offering His righteous life in our stead as our substitute. And then taking on in Himself our punishment. He substituted Himself in both ways. Voluntarily, He didn't have to. He had never sinned. He didn't have to die. Um, He was righteous. He had earned eternal life really in His obedience and faithfulness. And He yet gave His life for us to rescue us that we simply through faith in His substitution, through simply saying, you know what, I'm going to stop trusting myself. I'm going to stop pursuing sin. doesn't mean that I have the power to never do it again, but I, I change my orientation. I don't want to live for sin. I don't want to look to sin and self. I want to turn and look to Jesus. Through that simple act of faith of turning and trusting Christ, we receive all these benefits of His death for us. His righteous life given on our behalf, His atoning blood shed for us. In some ways, it's like this. Jesus took the test of life and got an A+. You've taken the test of life, if you're honest with yourself, and you've got an F-. And we can compare like, well, I got, you know, my grade was a 25. That's better than yours is a 20, 
a 20 or 15. The fact is, we all fell short, right? It doesn't matter what grade you get and how, better, how much better you are than one another. Compared to His standard in Jesus, we all get Fs. Whether it's a zero or what, what's the F? 60 below, right? 59. Wherever you might be in the scale, we've all failed. But He got an A+. And He submits His exam on your behalf should you want to receive it. And then He takes the punishment for your failure on Himself should you receive it on the cross. And then He rises again on the third day saying, you know what? It works. It's fully paid. It's accomplished. It's done. And now I've risen from the dead alive forevermore as a man and as a promise of what comes for all those who trust in Me. You too have life now and you too will have eternal life and a New body as Jesus did in His resurrection state in a new creation. That's what awaits us. That's the good news. And so Paul is living in light of these truths. That's what's going on. He's living for this final day. And he's thinking of others in light of this. You see, when we get the Gospel, when we get the good news, when we get the truth around it, it changes how we think about others and how we relate. And we want more than anything that people would be with Jesus as a result. And with passion. And with affection. And with love. And that's what Paul's demonstrating here. He's demonstrating that perspective and, and the changed life as a result. I don't know for you what your experience has been. I imagine it's similar to mine. When I heard this good news for the first time, I couldn't believe it. Part of my story is I had a life where it was very obvious that I was in sin and I knew it and I knew I was a mess and, and I heard this good news and, and, I, and I believed and received and it was amazing. I, couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. That there was an answer, that there was rescue, that I didn't have to continue in the bondage and sin that I had known. And I wanted more than anything that everybody I knew would hear this good news. I didn't understand how it all worked. I actually just thought because my experience was first time I heard it, I believed. And I just thought, everybody, I guess they've just not heard it. Once they hear it, it's going to be the same. So I started telling the good news to everybody. I, I, I could. My family, my, my friends. I just wanted to tell everybody this good news. And it was a little frustrating when they didn't believe right away. I thought, well, what's going on? Let me do it again. And I go back through the message again. Maybe I didn't do it right. I came to understand that there's more that needs to go on. It's just not simply me. God needs to break through. But that passion was there. And I see that in you guys as well. I know some of your stories... And I know that that passion is still there. And what Paul's demonstrating here, I take and I want you to take as encouragement to feed that passion and never give up on having that heart. Because sometimes you can get cynical as you go on. You're like, you know, they're never going to believe. I've tried. This is my thousandth time sharing the Gospel with them. and I don't know if they're going to believe. Well, the answer for that is not to grow cynical and withdraw and be, let disappointment control you. The answer for that is to look to Jesus to meet you in your sorrow that they haven't yet believed. And keep on loving them. And keep on desiring that they be with Him. Keep on having that heart. Keep on interceding for them and not giving up to your dying day praying that they would come to believe. To, to, to continue to have that heart. I think of when I think about this, this song that Keith Green wrote to his parents after he had come to know the Lord. 
Keith Green was a worship leader and recording artist back in the early 80s. Went on to be with the Lord and died at a young age. Um, but he wrote this song, and he, this name of the song is uh, For My Parents, I believe. And this is what it says. I think we have the lyrics to show. I won't sing it. I'll just say it. <laughs> I, I don't have that really high voice in anyhow. But anyhow, this is what he says. I, said, I need to say these things because I love you so. And I'm sorry you get angry. When I say that, you just don't know. That there's a heaven waiting for you and me. I know it seems every time we talk, I'm only trying to just make you see. It's only that I care. I really only just want to see that. Please try and overlook my, my human side. I know I'm such a bad example and you know I'm so full of pride. But Jesus isn't like that. No, He's perfect all the way. I guess that's why we need Him. Because by ourselves, there's just no way. And it's only that I care. I really, really only just want to see you there. To see you there. That's what our heart should continue to be for those who don't know Jesus. And for those who do. Because we, by how we live, prepare them to be there. We are used by God to keep them so that they will be there. And we are used by God to increase their reward and joy in being there. And so there's two sides in application of this particular section. One is, is that if you have not come to faith in Jesus, we want to see you there. We love you. We respect you. We don't want to push you and force you, but oh, how we want you to be there. And if you're a believer, we want to do all we can as a church to help you to be ready to be there, to, to stay and abide with Him. Um, for it's He who endures to the end who will be there. That's how your faith is shown by your endurance. And we're part of the means of you enduring. So we want to help you endure and we want to maximize your reward there. When the Gospel changes our lives, it changes how we think about others and it makes us desire that people would be with Jesus. Second point, when the Gospel affects our lives, it gives us the desire to be together. So Paul wanted to see the Thessalonians with Jesus, but he also wanted to be with the Thessalonians. He loves them. And he uses language in this, in this section that's really strong language actually. He says, uh, uh, but since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time. That's strong language. Torn away from you brothers. It, it's actually in the original language, it's, it's a word used that uh, when it's actually the components of the word actually have have speak to when like a baby would be torn from a mother. So think of a, a young mother and her baby's like taken away from her. The feelings uh, that that mother would have towards that baby. That's the word here. We were torn away from you. We were were ripped from your arms, brothers. And then he says, in person, not in heart. Our hearts are for you, and we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. And, and so there's a lot of passion in that. Now, it's interesting in the English translation, we, I don't think we'd ever say something like that. If I said, I endeavored with the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face, you'd be like, what? Uh, you've been watching too much Jane Austen stuff? I mean, we don't talk like that. Um, think of it this way, uh, that, that we, we love you guys and, and we did all we could and with just such passion just to be with you again. That's what he's saying. We were torn away. And we tried 
as hard as we could and with all of our passion to somehow just be with you again. That's what he's saying. There's, there's a lot of emotion here. The strength of his language is, is, is obvious in what we see just looking at these words. And this is how Paul feels about the Thessalonians. It's dramatic. It's emotional. And I don't think Paul's just being a, a, a drama king here. This is how he feels towards them because the Gospel's changed his life and how he thinks of others and, and the love of Christ has filled his heart. That love that Christ has that, that is infinite for, uh, for us and beyond our comprehension fills our hearts towards one another. And so Paul feels this deeply about other Christians. And he's instructing them in all this too. And God is instructing us, King of Grace, through His Word about what it looks like to love one another when we've been changed by the Gospel. It, it, it reminds me actually of uh, this sort of tearing away and this sort of, of emotion of, a, of a, a story I saw on the news a little while back about the reunification of families and individuals across the uh, 38th parallel from North Korea to South Korea. I don't know if anyone saw that. It was featured recently. Uh, there were these people, different, different people that had been separated by the war, and then when the border between North and Korea and South Korea was established, you can't cross it, particularly North coming to South, or South going North, either way. Um, and, and so they set up recently reunification. And, and it was a, an amazing experience. Uh, there's one woman, the upper left, uh, uh, Lee Kumsyong, and she's 92 years old. And that's her son, who she hasn't seen in 67 years. He's 71. He himself, relatively old. And they're reunited. And all those other families, it's the same thing. And, and it was amazing um, just to watch. I don't know if you saw any of the video footage as they embraced and celebrated. And then it was really bittersweet because they had to leave. They had to get on a bus and leave. And it, just looking and thinking about what it must have felt like for them. First off, to see you know, your son after 67 years. Just, they just couldn't have contact because of the way things are. And to be reunited. Uh, what it would have felt like and the emotions. And then, uh, then to essentially have them torn away again. Not necessarily to see them ever again. What it would have felt like. And, and I, I don't put this picture up just to make you sad, but to connect with what Paul's saying, because that's the level of emotion he's expressing here. It's the same sort of, ex of experience for him as he thinks about the Thessalonians. So that's why he says what he does. And this is consistent. It isn't just here in 1 Thessalonians. We, we see it throughout the Scripture. The sort of heart we're to have towards others. Actually, it's interesting. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter speaks about the new birth and the new life that we have. And he says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, Right, got that, right? So that means uh, having experienced new life by obeying the truth. Obeying the truth is embracing the truth of the Gospel. That's simply what it is. That's what he's saying. So, so you guys, Peter, he's talking to the people, you've heard this Gospel, you've turned and you've trusted Christ. That's the truth. You're obeying it by responding it, to it in faith and then living out the life that follows. So that's what he's saying. But then what does he say next? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So the result of your conversion, the result of your new life in Christ is for a sincere brotherly love. 
That's the background. Part of why you're rescued from Jesus, part of why you're saved from your sins, part of why you've experienced regeneration is that you would love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the purpose here. And so Peter says, love one another. How? Earnestly. From a pure heart. So we're to love each other at the level that Paul's loving the Thessalonians. It's interesting in Romans 16.16. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Why does he say that? Well, in their culture, how did you greet family members and close friends? With a holy kiss. With a kiss. Now he's saying a holy kiss. So it's a different kiss than maybe the culture used. But, but that's how in that culture, the Mediterranean culture, you greeted each other affectionately. You let people know how you felt about them in that culture. And so he says, Church of God, you guys should greet one another with a holy kiss. Because you're family and because you're to love each other in this way. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not proposing that we start kissing each other or something. It's contextualized to a more Mediterranean culture. But if you're that background and that is meaningful, there's an appropriate way to express affection. And it's just fitting. The point here is not the kiss, the point is the affection. The love that's there. So brothers and sisters, do you love each other at this level? Do you feel that level of affection for one another? So that when you're not able to be with your brothers and sisters, something happens and for whatever reason, you feel like you've been torn away. I, I know just as Toby was talking, I was thinking about this in terms of Jane and our love for our sister and appreciation for her. I'm sure she's feeling that and we're feeling that a little bit being torn away. And that's part of what Paul is talking about. The context here is, is it's a call to have that level of love. And, and, and the call that we need to hear is that we're called to love each other like this. The church should demonstrate, this local church, every church should demonstrate this level of a love and affection among the brothers and sisters. That's what it looks like when the Gospel affects us. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we feel this way about those in our local church. And I know by and large this is true here. And I'm so grateful for it. But let's do it more and more. Let's understand that the standard is really high. It's glorious. It's good. And others actually should know us by our love. They should look at us, relate to each other, and say those guys really love each other. So what we do and how we express affection, they should know it. It shouldn't be like the guy and his family at the airport. Hey. Hey. And they just walk together. And, and, and does it... The world looks at that and says, What's, I don't, something's wrong there. I don't know what it is, but something's wrong there. It should be obvious when you are with your brothers and sisters that you love them. Because Christ has filled your heart with love. And others look at you and say, wow, these guys love each other. Whatever that looks like in our culture. They're devoted with a holy love for one another. Make no mistake about it that there's something going on here where these guys are really glad to be together. That's what Paul is teaching us. That's what this is about. But it's in the context of actually not experiencing that firsthand, right? The context here, third point, is, is dealing with being apart. And it's interesting to see that, that Paul is saying, we, I wanted to be with you. I, Paul, again and again, multiple times, I tried, but Satan hindered us. Wow, that's interesting. 
So Paul has been trying to be in Thessalonica, and Satan's hindered him. Now, it's interesting on many levels. Um, first off, that he says Satan hindered him. This is Paul, the apostle. He's you know seen the risen Christ. He believes in the the sovereign God who's sovereign over all, rules over all. He's been commissioned by the Great Commission, right? Along with the whole church, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. So that's the background here, right? He's living this, this way, and, and he's one who's actually uh, used to raise the dead. He rebukes demons and they flee. This is Paul, right? All that. And he's saying, yet Satan hindered us. Interesting. I think there needs to be a category in life when we experience opposition where we understand it as Satan hindering us. doesn't mean that there's a demon under every bush. Everything's always a demon. But there needs to be a category for that. The reality is that Satan will hinder us. Satan will get involved in keeping us from being together and keeping us from accomplishing the mission. It's part of the reality. I'm reading Job in my, in my quiet times right now, my, my times with the Lord in the morning. And... In Job, we see right where God sovereignly is over Job's life and, and then He allows Satan to go and do things. And Satan actually goes and he, he causes terrible things to happen. He actually brings death on Job's kids. And so there's a degree of latitude that the enemy can be allowed that's significant. And there needs to be a category for this. And understand this. And, and it fits alongside these other truths. So we don't look at the devil as somehow on equal footing with God. And we don't freak out. Oh no, the devil's doing stuff. We're all in trouble now. Because Scripture doesn't teach us that. Paul's example here is really compelling. What does he do? He doesn't go off and saying, you know, Satan hindered us and oh no, I don't know if I'm ever going to get to see you. The church is going to fall apart. Everything's going to go wrong because Satan's at work. He doesn't do that. He just mentions it goes back on to his main point. And then later on in the letter, he actually brings some instruction to us. Chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. He says this, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. He prays. That's how he responds to the hindrance of Satan. Is He prays to God who's over all. That they may be able to go back. He prays. He trusts God. And He prays. And he prays blessing on them in the meantime. That's how he responds. He trusts God. He doesn't look at Satan's activity and, and start, you know, he doesn't start high level spiritual warfare tearing down, you know, principalities and powers. He doesn't do that. That example isn't in Scripture, by the way. Um, the response to the activity of Satan at, at these levels is to trust God, to pray, and continue to do good. There's a, there's a whole other level of deliverance and. If, that we encounter that, we deal with differently. That's not the category Paul's talking about. It's kind of high-level strategic sort of opposition going on. And so he prays and he trusts God. And he trusts God that they'll see each other again. And if we look in Acts chapter 20, it, it looks like it happened. It looks like it, it got answered. In Acts chapter 20, you can read that Paul, um, what he did there is he actually journeyed from, uh, through Macedonia uh, in Macedonia is where Thessalonica is. He went through those regions. It says in Acts chapter 20, uh, after the uproar ceased, this is in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And that is where Thessalonica is. It's, there are three church plants in Macedonia, uh, Philippi, uh, Thessalonica, and then Berea. And so he went through those churches, it looks like, 
and had given them much encouragement. Isn't that great? He went. He he gave them much encouragement. Uh, there he spent three months in um, in Greece, and then it, he set sail for Syria. And then look at the list of the people that are with him. Verse four. We have this projected. Uh, uh, Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Segundus. So. He's been back with them. And he's actually got team members from their church. So the connection's been reestablished. The prayer has been answered. And so let's pray in our parting. Let's look to Jesus in our parting. Um, and, and whether that parting is something that the enemy does, or it's just part of life. We live in this world and we don't get to be with each other the whole time. The Lord, in, in, for different reasons as well, Separates us. We just experienced this, didn't we, the other week? We sent out nine dearly loved people. And we'll never relate to them as a church as we once did. They're gone. We'll still see them here and there. But they've been sent out to start a church in Salem. I think we have pictures of that. And three years before that, we did it another time. We sent out like 25 people. Our own kids. Some of you sent your kids, and dear friends, and they were sent out. And it's hard. I wish they all were here. I wish we could just all be together and have this really big church just loves each other. But we wouldn't be accomplishing the mission. God in His sovereign plan has, has things that He does. He calls people for different reasons. And we trust Him in that. And we live for the final day. Because there will be a day when we're with Jesus. And they're with Jesus. And there'll be no more parting. There'll be no more separation. We'll be together with Him forever. And so we put our hope in Jesus. We pray if the band could come up as we close. We put our hope in Jesus. We pray. We seek Him. We trust Him. And we look to that final day. Knowing that there'll be a day, there'll be a reunion, and it'll be glorious. We'll be with Him forever. We'll be with His people forever. And it will never cease. That's how we deal with this. So, Grace Church, let us live in these truths. Let us live in the Gospel that reorients us to be people that love others and want them to be with Jesus more than anything. Don't allow cynicism or disappointment or failure to stop you from feeling that way and acting that way to your loved ones. Don't stop sharing the Gospel with them when you can. Yes, do so respectfully. Yes, love them with your lives. But don't give up Keep on loving them. You're, you're not, you cannot protect yourself. If you seek to protect yourself and, 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 and shut off that part of your life, part of your relationship with Jesus will die. Because it's who He is. And it's how He feels. So continue to feel that love and let Him minister to you and strengthen you and help you in your sorrow, in your disappointment. But don't give up. And let His love fill you with love for your brothers and sisters. If in thinking about it, you realize, you know, I, I, I kind of love my church, but I'm not sure. Ask Him for help. Ask Him to change your heart. Ask Him to give you more of His love for each other. And then let's trust Him in the parting. Let's trust Him to reunite us, if not soon, eventually in His presence.